0: This morning, we consider even a word that is in most cases a negative connotation to us the word discipline. Discipline for most of us is most readily associated with parents disciplining children. For maybe for some of you in the room, discipline brings you back to a drill sergeant disciplining a recruit or a coach disciplining. A player. In fact, I know that some of you right now are being disciplined by your coaches. This is that time of year. But discipline, when we come to the concept that we find in Hebrews chapter 12, is not at all a negative word. In fact, it's not a negative concept in any way. Because removed from the discipline that we find here is the, the condemnation that we associate often with discipline in our experience. So, whatever our natural tendencies, it's important for us to set aside whatever rings in our ears when we read the word discipline and consider what the author of this letter says about discipline this morning. In fact, that's exactly why he wrote these words. He is teaching about discipline, about what's taking place in the lives of these believers, just like you and just like me. Real people. Real followers of Christ who were really experiencing suffering and struggle and who needed to understand and have clarity about what it was that was taking place in their lives. It's critically important, and that's why we read throughout this chapter this morning. It's important for us to have our context as we dive into this portion of this paragraph. Um, The author has just come off of explaining and highlighting the examples of the great people of faith in the Old Testament. And in fact, the great God in whom they trusted is even more on display in Hebrews chapter 11. And all of chapter 11 is for the purpose of calling these real Christians, as I remember Shannon Hurley reminding us um, a year or so ago, It's for the purpose of calling these believers and calling these believers to walk by faith. To live in faith. To endure in faith. To finish the race is the imagery of verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 12. And to endure and to continue and to finish the race of faith. The author of Hebrews establishes the starting place. Is looking to the founder and the perfecter of that faith. His name is Jesus. The gospel is the anchor of what he explains to be true about discipline in verses 7 through 11. So, everything that we will study this morning about God's disciplining work in his people's lives is anchored, it's tethered to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the basis of the truth that we will study and. I trust that the Spirit will drive deep into our hearts this morning about discipline. The witnesses that are in heaven who have already died, many who have been martyred, are an encouragement along the way. This explanation and teaching, and even the quote from Proverbs chapter 3, is an encouragement along the way. But there is only one starting place for this perspective. That marks this paragraph, and it is Jesus Christ Himself. So in verse number three, the author turns his his attention to the thinking, the mind of these Hebrew believers. When we read the word consider him, often that rolls off our tongue without even a second thought. But considering is to meditate upon, to to, to let the mind play out to the fullest this thought. Jesus has endured for us. He has received ultimate discipline. And so we, in what is a very different discipline from the Father, should consider carefully our scenario according to these truths. So, what is it that we're to think about discipline? Well, here is, here's the big idea, for I believe, for this text, and it's quite simple. Divine discipline is a privilege of divine adoption. Divine discipline, God's disciplining work, is a privilege of divine adoption. I doubt strongly, unless your children are super children, that any of your children, after you have disciplined them, perhaps your younger children receiving a rather firm hand of discipline, have turned to you and said, thank you, it was a privilege for this to happen today, dad or mom. What a privilege to receive this from you. And yet, what we'll find in this portion of God's Word is that divine discipline is just that. It is a privilege of our divine adoption. There's just two broad truths that I think will help us understand That great theme, that divine discipline, is a privilege of our divine adoption and they are simple and right from the text as usual. Discipline comes from God. Number one, discipline comes from God. And number two, discipline comes for good. It comes from God and it comes for good. These two truths assure us that any disciplining work that is in in our current scenario is a privilege and is directly connected to our adoption as sons and daughters of the King. Let's begin then with discipline coming from God and let's consider, let's think carefully about the shaping, training work of God in the lives of His people. Discipline comes from God Verse number 7, the author says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. You have to endure what? Well, if we go backwards, just the few verses before, we find in verse number 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And previous to that, he's spoken of the battle for Their daily lives and the struggle of persecution for Christ and suffering in a general sense. There is no suffering and there is no struggle with sin that does not demand endurance. And that endurance is for discipline, it is for training in our spiritual lives. That is exactly why we endure. 2 Peter chapter 1 rehearses this same theme just a few pages over we find Peter writing to the believers who were suffering that there was an ongoing progress in their spiritual growth through endurance. The discipline of endurance works the fruits of righteousness in God's people. And this discipline which is the purpose for the endurance in their struggle and suffering comes from God what sweet comfort it is to read the next verses in ver- or the next words in verse number 7 God is treating you as sons perhaps we should stop there and just wonder at that sentence that God would ever treat us as sons the implications are huge here God loves us. He is not furious with us. He is passionate for our existence. Not because we have performed in a way that has earned His affections. Not because He sees in us such merit that He cannot resist loving us. You are not so special that God can't keep His eyes off of you and other things like that that show up on your Christian radio station. His Son is so precious, and His substitutionary work is so perfect. And in His gracious work in drawing us to Himself, allowing us to see clearly the glory of His Son through faith, He has granted to us righteousness that is not our own. He has brought us from slaves to sin to be sons of His great name and servants of His great cause. And so when we suffer and when we struggle and when there is difficulty in our lives, we are not struggling and going through difficulty and suffering as the enemies of God or the children of wrath. But as sons of God. And brothers and sisters, that changes everything. Discipline comes From God. It is His gracious and kind work. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Paul reminds us that there is now no condemnation. We sang it in the final verse of in Christ alone. There is no condemnation for us. No discipline from the Father comes with frustration. He never lashes out at His children. He is without flaw in His loving, training Discipline. While Ephesians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 1 and 2, Romans chapter 1 through 3 all describe us apart from Christ as children of wrath, we now have the comfort of receiving discipline in our struggle in life as those who have been made children of God Himself. Verse number 7 draws our logic for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And that hearkens us back to Proverbs chapter 3 and verse, verse number 10, 11, and 12, which is quoted in verse 5 and 6 of, of this chapter in Hebrews. The Lord disciplines the ones He loves. So perhaps this morning, you struggle like I struggle to see this, the difficulties in my life, the the terrible circumstances of life, the struggles with sin in life as being something somehow separated from God Himself. That is not so. He is directly and intimately connected to all of them because He is in every case disciplining us as His sons. So divine discipline is the privilege of divine adoption because discipline comes from God Himself and comes without anger and wrath. Now there are severe consequences to this. If we play this out theologically, if we think biblically about discipline, and the correcting work of God in our lives, the shaping and molding through struggles and trials and difficulties, and even the battle with sin, then verse number 8 leaves us with a serious consideration. Verse number 8 says this, if you are left without discipline if you don't know this discipline, if you don't experience this discipline from God, if you find none of this in your life, in which all, that is all who are God's sons, in which all have participated, then there is no gray area. You are illegitimate children. And you are not sons. I remember in college sitting down with uh, my girlfriend at the time to become members of our local assembly there, Community Baptist Church. We sat down with, I think, multiple elders, listened to our testimonies of faith, and Renee has, uh, has had, always had uh, muddy confusion about when the Lord changed what was just simply head knowledge about the gospel to open her eyes of faith, to awaken her heart to love Christ. So the elders were kind of probing into that and said, well, what are, the, what are the evidences now? What is it that brings confidence now that you are alive in Christ? What is the present reality of life in Christ? And I remember distinctly because I was so impressed, actually. I thought, wow, we didn't even rehearse this in the car. This is amazing. How did she come up with something theological without me helping her? That's the kind of humble boyfriend thoughts that were going through my brain at the time. Renee said, the most convincing fruit of God's work in my heart is I sense and I appreciate and I experience the disciplining correction in my life. The conviction for sin, the shaping and molding of my existence is an ongoing part of what the Spirit of God is doing, and it brings great hope that I am a child of God. And that's exactly what verse number eight brings to bear upon us this morning. No discipline. Not a child. Not a child. Loved one, listen. That's eternal in its consequences. Not a child. There is no hope. The author of Hebrews intends to teach about discipline, but he can't do it without warning those who would call themselves followers of Christ who experience none of this gracious, loving, correction, and shaping work of God. This is the privilege of divine adoption. It comes from the very hand of God. Discipline in our lives as His people, shaping and molding us, is His work Your struggle with sin and my struggle with sin is His idea. He could have taken us immediately to an eternal presence with Him that will be free from sin, but He leaves us here in the battle with sin to be testimonies of His grace. It's His idea. He disciplines through it. He works through it. It's His loving hand that is active in even our battle against sin the difficulty of your life circumstances, the trials that you are now experiencing have the fingerprints of God all over them because He is disciplining you and me. Your struggles, my struggles are His idea. Persecution for His kingdom purposes and for His namesake is His idea. So we must think biblically about our circumstances, especially when we are struggling, suffering, or facing persecution. Because in those cases, we are most prone to think, God has abandoned me. He's left me alone. He has done me wrong. He doesn't love me. How could He do this if He's good and loves me? He does this because He is disciplining us. He's training us. He's shaping us. It's from His hand. Listen to this quote in a specific scenario from Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a Puritan pastor, nonconformist, 1600s. He says this, quoting someone, I think I could be content with God's hand, says one. So far as I see the hand of God in a thing, I can be content. But when men deal so unreasonably and unjustly with me, I do not know how to bear it. I can bear that I should be in God's hands, but not in the hands of men. When my friends or acquaintances deal unrighteously with me, oh, this goes very hard with me, so that I do not know how to bear it from men. For taking away this reasoning, consider this, Jeremiah says, Though they are men who bring this cross to you, yet they are God's instruments. God has a hand in it. And they can go no further than God would have them go. This was what quieted David when Shammai cursed him. God has a hand in it, he said. Though Shammai is base, wicked, yet I look beyond him to God. So do any of your friends deal injuriously with you or wrongly with you? Look up to God and see that man but as an instrument in God's hands. No matter it be injustice like this particular scenario or some other expression of trial and difficulty or even the ongoing battle with sin, it is critical for us if we are to recognize the work of God, receive the work of God, be trained by the work of God, that we see God behind the activities of our lives. This is a God perspective on what is happening. And it will hit us by the time we are in the parking lot today. Whether we will see God at work, or whether we will face our circumstances as if He has abandoned us. Divine discipline is the privilege of divine adoption. Because discipline, divine discipline comes from God Himself. Number two, discipline comes for good. It doesn't just come from God. It comes for good. Notice these verses now carefully. Besides this, here's a second thought. Verse number nine. We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. second truth that comes crashing in on our our natural sense that God has abandoned us in difficult circumstances is that discipline not only comes from God, but it comes for good. It comes for our benefit. Every single time. It is never for our demise or for our ill. It is always for our embetterment. Paul uses, or not Paul, pardon me. I just displayed my confidence in who wrote the letter of Hebrews. This anonymous author wrote this under the inspiration of the Spirit. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? Um, what he's doing there is arguing with a lesser to greater argument. Don't you love this? I mean, This is just pure, easy logic. If this happened, and it's really small, then shouldn't this that's really big be responded to in the same way? Or even more so? And so he uses a human picture, and while none of your children, at least not my girls, have ever paused in the midst of discipline and said, this is a distinct privilege, Dad. I highly regard you and respect you for what you're doing to me right now. I think all of us who have had parents who did discipline us, who did take effort and train us, deeply respect and value what they did. There is none of us who have been graciously and kindly disciplined by our parents that do not rise up and call them blessed. We don't don't hesitate to write the card on, on the day when we celebrate them uniquely, Father's Day or Mother's Day, and say, Thank you for loving me. And when we say loving me, we include the thought of discipline. And if that's our human perspective, which is the small, the lesser, How much more should we respond with respect, reverence, awe, and wonder, and regard for the discipline of God? That's the argument that comes. Because what God is doing is so much greater than what even a human parent is accomplishing. Human parents are finite. Human parents are plagued with sin and flesh. We know this. And so we do as we, as we think best in each moment. But we recognize that we may, may, may we make a mistake. We may discipline incorrectly. We may discipline wrongly. And yet it is respected and revered, even though each of us who have parents who have disciplined us in love know that our parents messed up. There were failures in the discipline we regarded highly. Here is the powerful truth of that logical argument. God never makes a mistake in His discipline. He's always doing the best thing. He's always working good for His people. So there is no reason to doubt Him. There is no reason to think He has abandoned us in this process. He is there and He is doing exactly what He intended to do. Verse 10 drives this home. Earthly parents did what seemed best to them, but God disciplines us for our good. And in American culture, it would be easy for us to think that the good is something temporal. So in other words, if there's a difficulty in my life, if there's a trial in my life, if there's a persecution in my life, and God's using this for good, I'd like to read the end of Job because I'd like triple on my investment. This discipline has been hard, and I would like the good to be three times as much as what I had before. But the author of Hebrews doesn't leave us to conjure up what the good of God's intentions are. The good work that God intends to do never changes, it is to conform us, Romans chapter 8, into the image of Jesus Christ. It is here in verse number 10, so that we may share in his holiness. It is less than enjoyable to be disciplined. We want to wiggle out of discipline. And yet, if we have a biblical perspective of discipline, we must see that it is the hand of God that is at work behind this difficulty, and it is for good that we might better display the holiness of God. What a powerful consideration that we would share in the holiness of God, that we would look Like our Creator, though stained and marred by sin, now redeemed and made right through Jesus Christ's work, we can share in the holiness of God. We can look like Him, think like Him, act upon His priorities, be completely set apart unto Him. Here's the good. That God is always doing when He disciplines us, brothers and sisters. He's always doing this. He never stops making us more and more like Himself. More and more like the perfect representation in human flesh of Himself, which is His own Son, who when we see Him, we will be completely like Him. The power of sin and the presence of sin will be forever removed. Understand that this does not mean that God disciplines us so that we are holy in some sense so that He can have us in His presence. We have been made righteous by Christ so now we are being made holy in our lives. That's the disciplining work. And it culminates in our presence with Him in what we call glorification when that holiness is accomplished. It's the ongoing progress and process of our lives to be disciplined by our Father for our good. We almost find relief in verse number 11 because it's in verses 7 through 10 that we have such a, a counterintuitive perspective on discipline. Um, it's as odd for us to think of discipline this way as it is for one of our children to say, Thank you for this privileged activity that I've just experienced with you, Father. So we're comforted by verse 11 because it reminds us about what is practically true as we fight for the biblical vantage point of the struggle and the difficulty of our lives the author says for the moment for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, the eternal perspective on God's work and discipline—the same as Paul revealed in Second Corinthians chapter four, verses sixteen through eighteen, where the the temporal, the momentary suffering that Paul was experiencing was like a feather weight on his shoulder compared to the massive weight of glory that he could anticipate in heaven because he could see that so clearly as the backdrop. What he was looking at here seemed so small. So often what we do is we switch those around and what is the backdrop and the biggest of our gaze is the difficulty and the struggle. And because of that, we lose sight and heaven becomes small and God's work becomes small and the fruits of His work become small in our gaze. And we lose heart. We miss the blessings and benefits of the discipline from our Father in heaven. Notice the words that the author uses. Each one of them is important in verse number 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But in fact, if we could see the fruit at the the time of the discipline, we would say, This is no pain. This is pleasure. This is pure privilege. This is a gift. It's just that the fruit takes time. The seeds that are planted in discipline have to turn into trees that bear fruit. And the ag metaphor is not lost on us here in Grace Church. The peaceful, settled, calm, Fruits of righteousness. The outworking of the righteousness of Christ that's already been given to us, the way that's fleshed out in us, is the result of the painful discipline. And the painful discipline always brings this to those who have been trained by it. That means, brothers and sisters, that when we face the struggle with sin, when we face difficulty and trial, when we face unknowns, and when we face persecution for Christ's sake, there is a very real possibility that we would resist the discipline of God, that we would fight for our own way of thinking about this, that we would come up with our own plans and that we would hold to our own agenda. And in that, we would lose the sweet benefit of the fruits of righteousness that are intended so that we might share in the holiness of our Father. And so that's why at the end of verse number 11, it's these blessings, these benefits, and this worldview that comes to those who have been trained by the discipline, who have received the discipline, who have engaged with a worldview that sets God as the first source of this disciplining work, who experience the blessings of the disciplining work. And who can say confidently, divine discipline in my life is the privilege of my adoption. If I wasn't a son of God, the circumstances of my life would only be delaying the inevitable wrath that's coming to me. So those who recognize, meditate upon, and submit to God's loving, fatherly discipline, ask questions like, what does God intend to teach me about Himself through this? And how can I live now in response to Him? How can I share His holiness and be trained in holiness in this particular circumstance? Whether it's a frustration in your day-to-day life, whether it's a massive shift in your lifestyle, whether it's the loss of a loved one, no matter the circumstance, you can be confident because discipline is coming from God and it is for good that God intends to bear fruits of righteousness in you and in me at every turn. God's loving discipline and training will be experienced if we will but submit our will to His and see the plans that He has for us as His expression of good. It is, it's easy for us to think of God as being good because he does good things. And then we define good things. So that's why often we're very confident that God is good when things are good. Who's defining good? I am. But what Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, reminds us is that God is good. Period. And therefore, everything He's involved with, everything He's doing in our lives is good. So now, He defines it. He is the one who is establishing what is stamped with the stamp good. And though it is painful at times, we must stamp it good. Because it is the disciplining hand of God Accomplishing His ultimate purposes. We know that all things work together for good to those who are the called according to His purpose. And that good is defined in verse number 29 and verse 30 as our progressive shaping likeness to Christ. So what do we do with this text? Number one question we must ask ourselves as we study this text, do I know this loving discipline and training work? Do I see this? Is this an active part of my existence where I'm being shaped and molded and the Spirit of God is using the circumstances of my life, mostly the most difficult ones, to help me to bear more brightly the light of the Gospel in my life? The holiness of God. The character of God. Is this the experience of my life? If not, run to Christ. Forsake your own way. Turn your back on your own wisdom. And run to Jesus Christ in faith. Cry out for mercy from the one who, the only one who has obeyed God's law. The only one who has died in the place of sinners bearing the wrath that they deserve. The only one who has been risen to eternal life in victory over death and sin. Run to Him and you will find grace. Second question, by way of conclusion, how am I actively submitting to God's discipline so that holiness in my current struggle is being seen? How am I actively submitting to God's discipline for, for holiness to be seen in my current scenario? How is God using now to shape me to look more like Himself? Because, brothers and sisters, every one of us in the room is living a, a, a real life. There's real experiences happening. There are real difficulties. There's real struggle with sin. There's real Persecution coming to us for standing for the Gospel and speaking boldly for our King. These are real things. And either God is at work in them shaping and molding us or we are illegitimate children who are calling ourselves by a name that we have never been granted. So if we are adopted, and there is no doubt in my mind that the vast majority of us stand together asking this second question. How can I be submitting to God's hand in my current scenario so that His holiness and His priorities and His character are being fleshed out in my daily life? Okay, I think those are careful questions to consider.